You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Have you ever wondered, like, why did the message of Jesus spread so quickly? So think about this for a minute. So it starts with one guy out in the middle of nowhere. He wears literally like camel hair, which was normal for a prophet to do, and he eats locusts. And from that guy named John the Baptist telling everybody to repent because the kingdom of heaven was near, all of a sudden today there are a little bit close to maybe a little over 2 billion Christians worldwide. It is the largest religion in the world. What, how do we go from that to there? And you wouldn't think locust guy is the answer, right? So there has to be a reason, a catalyst. Maybe you even wondered, why did this thing work? Well, I think today's text jumps right into that and gets to the heart of it. And today's text, I'm just going to tell you, is going to make some of you feel freed and excited. Some of you are going to want to hoop or holler or say amen, and I just want to encourage you, do it. Some of you are going to want to complain or argue, and I'll just say, don't do it. And um, I'm just kidding. So, but some of you, like, this is going to fly in the face of what you've experienced or what you've seen or what you thought maybe God or church church was all about. And so I just want to encourage you today to just watch and listen and observe. So here is the short answer, and the answer is very complex, so it's very, very simple and easy. I could say it, but it it takes a lot of unpacking. You ready? The reason why the message of Jesus took off so quickly and so effectively is simply this. You ready? It was good news. You're like, that's it? Like, that's it? Like, in a nutshell, no. Clearly, it's more than that, but it was good news. It is, it is good news. So in order to make the good news point clear for you today, I have to go back and make sense of it. See, Jesus begins his ministry in Luke, Luke 4, and he goes to his hometown, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes right to the spot where it says that he is going to come and set captives free. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But see, he didn't necessarily do it in the earthly, physical sense, though he did also do that. He set captives free by making the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. But he did more than that. In the spiritual sense, he set captives free. But even more than that, his message was so revolutionary that it radically changed the way culture works today. So when Jesus went to the people that others judged and cast aside and cast out, people like lepers... People like Gentiles, people like sinful tax collectors and immoral women, and people like women. You're like, well, pastor, that just kind of took a hard left turn. But see, maybe it's because you don't know today's text as well as I do after studying it. Take a look with me. Luke chapter 8. If you don't know where Luke 8 is, no worries. Everything's going to be up here for you. You got to see this. This is radical, and I'll try to make sense of it for you. Here we go. Luke 8. We're going to spend almost all of our time right here in these three verses. Luke 8 verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from town, from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. See, I don't know about you, but for me, 
When I first started kind of reading my Bible for myself, I was in high school, I'd gone through this hard kind of wandering away from God season, and I decided I'm going to start reading the Bible, and it made no sense to me. There are lots that I read, okay, I could kind of figure that out, but there are parts that I read like this, and I went, okay, thank you for telling me, Luke, and I just move on, which is probably what you did. If you even picked it up and read it, and you went, who cares? But what you don't realize is in three small verses, Luke just loaded a gun. I mean, it is huge, it is massive, it is big. And the reason you don't understand it is because you're American. That's it. That's the simple reason. Because you were born or maybe moved to and chose to come to this great nation. Praise God, we are in America. I mean that. Praise God. And praise God that we uh, get to take part in this country that was founded on Christian principles. Now, is our country perfect? Come on, if you say yes, then you're not being honest with yourself. There is greed, and there is pride, and there is lust, and there is racism, and there is brokenness. But I praise God we live in the country we live in. If you travel the world at all, you will see there are many parts of the world where there is much oppression and evil and bad things going on. Is every nation the same? No. But I'm telling you, I thank God that I live in America. I do. I thank God that I live in America. But I also feel responsible for making sure that other people have some of the same freedoms that we have here. Now, why is that relevant? The reason this is relevant and what Luke is doing as he's setting up the rest of the Gospels. See, when Jesus began his first public sermon on a hillside, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, when he did that, he began to tell us the kind of people who are going to be blessed by this good news. What you don't know as an American, because much has been done to advance the rights of women in our culture already, what you don't understand is just how much women were second-class citizens in the first century. This is why so many stories in the book of Luke deal with women, because Luke is trying to tell you Jesus is doing something new. So this week, I did a ton of research and a ton of study, and it's kind of funny. I didn't say this in the other service, but it's kind of funny, because this past Tuesday, we're sitting down to play in the service. Rhett and his team work really hard. We kind of come together, and I bring the content. He brings all this worship stuff. We kind of put it together in a blender and make sure it makes sense, and we're sitting down, and they're asking me about the sermon where I'm laying. I'm talking about it, and they're like, well, Matt, that's next week's sermon. I'm like, no, no, this is this week's sermon. He's like, no, this week's sermon on this, and here's what I realized. I preached this week's sermon last week. <clears throat> You're like, yeah, that's why I can pay the big bucks right there. So we're sitting in a meeting going, what are we going to talk about this week then? Since I spend months reading and writing and arithmeticing this stuff together, I've kind of put it all together and I'm like, well, I better do a bunch of research. So I've been reading and listening and studying this mess. And here's the thing. I can't bring you all the hours of stuff that I've consumed this week on this topic, but I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm going to summarize it, but here it is. A woman's place in the first century AD was thought to be in the home. Women were responsible for bearing the children, rearing the children, and then maintaining a hospitable home. And some of you are like, well, that's not that radical. Okay, hang on. Men were not allowed to greet women in public. In fact, if a man ran into his own wife in public, he was not to acknowledge her. Some of you are like, well, that explains my marriage today. I know. So some Jewish writers... In Jesus' time, like a guy named Philo actually taught that women should never leave the home except to go to the synagogue. Some of you are like, I'd go crazy. Well, generally, the women would marry young, and they were always under the protection and the authority of a man. It would start with their father. 
it would transfer to the husband, and if she never got married, it would go to the closest male relative, and if the husband died, it would transfer then to, there was a very kind of strict order of where it would go next. And this left women in a very vulnerable position within Judaism. They had little access to property or inheritance except through the male relative, whether it was dad or the husband. Usually money a woman earned belonged to her husband or her father if she was still under her father's care. So she had no resources herself. Men could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason. In fact, there are some rabbis in the day who taught that is if your wife displeased you, you could divorce her. Okay, think for a second about how hard that is. Has anybody in here ever not been displeased with their spouse, besides my own? Has anybody in here also had that phenomenon? Of course not. By the way, and this is a side note that I said last service, and a couple of people were challenged and blessed by it, so I'll, I'll take the chance of repeating it. Ladies, um, single ladies who are living with your boyfriend or fiance, this is one of the major reasons why I say don't go there, don't go there. See, you lose every time. You do. And the reason you lose every time, in short, is simply this. Your, your fiance, your boyfriend gets his cake and can proverbially eat it too. He has no motivation to put a ring on your finger. He has no motivation to marry you. And you will be stressed out and anxious trying to do everything you can not to displease him to keep him happy and all the time satisfied so that he doesn't walk out somewhere else. And it works against you. And that's not the point of today's message. But I praise God we live here, not there, but there's still remnants of it in our culture. However, a lady could literally not divorce her husband for any reason in Jewish culture. Now, Roman culture was a different thing. At six years old, a boy could learn the law. He could start to be taught the Old Testament, the ways of God, At six years old, a little girl could be sold as a slave. A woman's testimony was not admissible in court for herself, to defend herself. If she witnessed something take place, she couldn't even show up and testify that she was a witness to something to defend somebody else. She was considered not trustworthy to even give testimony to to, to whatever was witnessed. Women were actually held responsible for the sexual sin of men. This explains why in the story you've heard about before where Jesus is teaching and these religious teachers interrupt Jesus and they try to trap him in one of those questions and they bring a woman to him who's been caught in adultery and Jesus says, you who's without sin cast the first stone because basically by doing that, he got out of the Roman law and the Jewish law and proved he had the right answer. The question always though is, where's the guy? She's being held responsible for his sin too. And that was normal in that culture. In a book called Ecclesiasticus, it's called an apocryphal book. So the way you got to look at apocryphal books is they're not canonical. And you're like, dude, it's too early in the morning to learn words like apocryphal and canonical. Canonical means they come from the canon. The canon is the group of books that were determined to be from God through human authors. They were either written literally by apostles like Peter and John and Paul and Matthew or by what we call those who were contemporaries or those who were taught by the apostles. For instance, Luke, the guy who wrote this book, was not an apostle, but he followed around, did a bunch of research, and was taught specifically by Peter and Paul and probably also interviewed Mary and then wrote his 
this book. And they took those books. There was a huge debate and discussion about which ones were and which ones weren't, and they nailed them down. But there were these other books, and the Jews had some books, and the Christians later had some books that did not fit that. This book, Ecclesiasticus, was an apocryphal book. It was not canonical. It did not fit the Jewish books. However, it goes to insight as to what has influenced culture. And the best example that I could give you today of that would be something like um, maybe Harry Potter or C.S. Lewis. And I realize they're like, those are two opposite extremes. But if you look at them, neither one are specifically from God, but they've influenced culture. And you might make a quote or a reference to either one of them, and many people will know what you're talking about. They've influenced the way we see the world. Well, Ecclesiasticus was that kind of book in the first century. And the book Ecclesiasticus literally says... A man's wickedness is better than a woman who does good. That is evil. But that's what the first century looked like. In the area of religious practice, women were in many ways simply overlooked. Men were literally required to pray certain prayers daily, but women were not. While the study of scripture was regarded as extremely important for men, women were not allowed to study the sacred texts. In fact, there was a guy named Rabbi Eliezer. He was a first century teacher, and he was noted for saying this. Rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. So now, come back with me. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Why is it good news? Because he came to set captives free. He came to bring life where there was none. He came to call into his kingdom all men, all women, regardless of age or education or social status or physical or mental ability. All can come. And then he goes further and he says, the 12 were with him. Well, the 12 were men. I mean, specifically, Jesus stayed up all night long, prayed, asked God who to choose. He chose 12 men. But then, also, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. For instance, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, let me connect a few dots for you for Mary. You've maybe heard of Mary Magdala or whatever. That's the whole point. She's from a town called Magdala. So sometimes she's called Magdalene or whatever, what they're trying to do, and I love this about Luke, is he's trying to tell you about her without any way shaming her. The number seven has significance in the Bible beyond just the number seven. I'm not saying that the number isn't literal. I'm saying beyond the literal, there is a deeper meaning. The number seven in the Bible stands for completeness. So for instance, in the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, I want you to march around the city of Jericho seven times. Well, why seven? Because seven times would have completely shown their faith in God. And when they did it, God was going to act on their behalf. We're told in Genesis that God created on seven days. And some will say the days are literal, and some argue the days aren't literal. It's not even my point for right now. My point is simply this. It was the complete number of days. 
on the seventh day, God rested. The book of Hebrews tells us God has not created a single thing since that day. All of his creating was done in seven days. And now the only new thing that gets created is us when we come to him and we get remade, made new again in Jesus Christ. We see this in the New Testament. When uh, Peter comes at Jesus, and Jesus teaching on forgiveness, and Peter says, how many times should I forgive my enemy? And Jesus said, he says, seven times, Jesus? Jesus says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven times. In other words, 490 times. Seven is significant because on the seventh day, the Israelites were to rest. On the seventh year, they were to take an entire year off and not work the land. And every 49 years, they take the 49th year off because it's seven sevens. And then on the 50th year, it's the year of, anybody know? Jubilee, some of you know. And the year of Jubilee is fantastic because guess what happens on the year of Jubilee? Everybody is set free. All debts are erased. You start to go, well, this number seven thing is powerful, isn't it? Oh, it's very powerful. And that's exactly what Luke is trying to get to here. This Mary, her life was being completely ruined. What does it mean that she was full of demons? Well, I take it literally Whatever exactly that means, she was completely free. What's owning you? Would you love to be completely free? Let me go a step further. So last week we talked about a story in the last chapter. There's a woman. We're told she's an immoral woman, a sinful woman. We believe probably her sin was that of prostitution. We're not 100% sure. But she hears Jesus in town and she comes in and she brings a jar of perfume with her and she cleans off Jesus' feet with her tears and the perfume and she uses her hair to wipe it off. Throughout church history, many scholars and theologians and pastors have connected Mary to that woman. Now, we can't be absolutely certain But the reason many have, and if it's true, the reason Luke's not saying that is because Luke wants to honor her, not shame her. See, that's very different than the culture that Luke is being raised in. How about this next woman? Joanna, the wife of Chusa? Chusa would have been a leader in Herod's household. If you ever watch the History Channel, the History Channel tries to tell you that, that Herod was this great builder and developer. Herod was a bad dude, a really bad dude. Had babies killed, has John the Baptist beheaded. He's not a good man. But somehow, she comes to faith in Jesus. Now, what's powerful is Mary Magdalene and Joanna are seen later at the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, they're two of the first people to see Jesus in the resurrection. We believe Luke references a group of women who are there at the cross. We know that John, the apostle John, the disciple John is also there. We know that, but he's the only guy there. Everybody else there is a woman. If you wanted to give credibility to Jesus's ministry, you would not mention the women. Then all they referred to is the women. It's probably these two. And part of the reason we believe that is because at the resurrection, they are some of the first two to be there at the empty tomb. Now the power of that is in a culture that says a woman can't even speak on her own behalf in a defense or in a law or court or whatever it is, Jesus uses them to be his major witnesses to his resurrection. That's radical. 
In fact, historians, Christian and non-Christian, have written about this. They said, if you wanted this message to take off, you would never have let the first two people at the tomb be women. You would have made the story about the men who came to the tomb. But Jesus says, I don't care what culture says. I care what God my Father cares about. So these two ladies are the first one to witness, and they go back and they grab the guys. In fact, the angels tell them, go back. Make sure Peter gets here. Maybe you're not quite getting the depth of this yet, but this is radical. To be honest, we have no idea who Suzanne is. Nobody, nobody has any idea. There's been all kinds of conjecture and theories and ideas thrown out, but you know why it's powerful? It's because there's another lady whose life was changed, whatever that means. We don't know what she did. We don't know where she came from. We don't know anything about her. So you've got somebody whose life is completely broken, set free from Jesus. You've got somebody who's well-to-do and famous, and she was set free by Jesus. We've got somebody, we have no idea who she is, but she was set free by Jesus. And also, by the way, we have many others. Well, who are they? Well, they could be you. But see, if there are many others and they are following Jesus, do you know what that means about them? They are what? Disciples. The word disciple literally means follower. That's radical. Not only did uh, men not speak to women in public, rabbis would have never addressed a woman in public. It would have downgraded his effectiveness and his ministry. Jesus doesn't even go so far as to talk to them in public. He goes even a step further and says, I'm gonna let you be in my group. It was such a radical thing that it would have discredited him in the eyes of the elite, but it would have elevated him in the eyes of everybody else. And why exactly then did Jesus do this? Because it's good news. Jesus came to set all captives free. It doesn't matter where you came from or what you're dealing with. He came to set you free. N.T. Wright and Luke for Everyone says this. These ladies have done the unthinkable. They have left the well-defined social space of home and family where they had a role and a duty and have chosen to accompany Jesus and his followers on the road from place to place, looking after their needs and doing so, moreover, out of their own pockets. One can only imagine the looks they would get and the things people might say about such a company. But one can also imagine Jesus thinking of them, not least as people in whose hearts and lives the word has had its effect, people who were already bearing fruit, putting life, reputation, and property at the disposal of this extraordinary new kingdom movement. The whole idea is when these ladies met Jesus, their lives were changed, and they said, I want to be a part of that. And they took their own time, their own energy, their own money, their own reputation, and they put it on the line. In fact, that lady, Joanna, who's married to Chusa, history tells us that it was because of her testimony inside the house of Herod that things got really wonky for them. Because Herod is the same guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. And so it goes a little sideways when she's the one going around telling everybody else about who Jesus is. In fact, when Herod goes to try Jesus, he even says, I've heard many things about you. It's more likely than anything that he heard about it from Joanna and her husband, Chusa. This lady was so bold that she made a massive impact in the home of Herod. But unfortunately, Herod 
hardened his heart and did not ever receive the message. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. So why then? Why is this message of good news a radical? It's radical because it teaches us to treat everybody as if they have value. And it doesn't matter your gender, and it doesn't matter your color of skin, and it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter your political position, and it doesn't matter your affluence, and it doesn't matter your name it. You have value. And the reason you have value is this. You were made in the image of God. In fact, James, half-brother Jesus, chapter three, verse nine says this. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. We'll get to some really annoying applications in a minute. Let me, let me just show you really quick three ways that Jesus' treatment of women was truly revolutionary. And then we'll get to like, what does that mean for us today? Number one, Jesus regularly addressed women directly while in public. In fact, in the chapter before, a story we kind of referenced last week but didn't really look at, in the chapter four, Jesus comes into a town and there's a woman there, a widow, and her son has just died and he literally heals the son. I'm guessing they had some sort of direct conversation. It's not crystal clear in the scriptures, but I don't know how you raise a son from the dead and give him back to his mother and say nothing to her. But we also see later in this chapter, or sorry, five chapters later, in Luke chapter 13, um, there's a woman for 18 years has been some sort of, had some sort of uh, infirmity, some sort of crippling, and Jesus heals her, literally. And when he heals her, he says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Now, you may hear woman and you think, wow, Jesus may like give women credit, but he like calls them woman, like that would be so offensive. That's because you're reading from your culture into their culture, which you can't do. You gotta accept their culture as is. When a man is told, don't talk to a woman in public, even if she's your wife, and especially if you're a rabbi, and Jesus says out loud, woman, part of what he's doing is letting everybody know I'm gonna talk to what? Women, this is radical. It's not discrediting, it's crediting, it's the opposite. The second thing, Jesus respected the full value of women. He loved them, saw them as precious and adoring. Again, made in the image of God, the likeness of God. In fact, in uh, Luke chapter eight, later on in this text, I was starting earlier, there's a woman who's been bleeding for years and years and years. She has spent all of her money trying to fix the problem and all the doctors have taken her money and they've all tried their little magic, whatever, take this, eat this, do this, change this, and nothing is fixing the problem. And this woman hears that Jesus is in town and she comes up and she sneaks up to him and she grabs just a part of his cloak and Jesus stops in his tracks and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, you're surrounded by hundreds of people. Everybody's touching you. And he said, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me. I know because power went out from me. He could feel it. And the woman humbly steps forward and finally admits, it was me, it was me. I'm so sorry. And he looks at her. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter. See, to really understand the power of that story, you have to understand the fact that she's been bleeding for this many years According to the Bible, according to the Old Testament law, when a woman was bleeding, she couldn't come in to worship. It's been years, years, since she's been able to come into the presence of God and deal with her sin and cry out, 
in the temple where people met with God. Years. What's it like to go to bed at night and wonder to yourself, God, are you there? Do you care? Am I so far outside of your provision and care, God, that you are not only not healing me, but you aren't even listening to me? So when Jesus looks at her and he says, daughter, you know what he's letting her know? He's letting her know you're a child of God. Your prayers were being listened to. Your father in heaven sees and knows. And that story I referenced earlier in Luke chapter 13, the woman who's been crippled and Jesus healed her. He doesn't just call her woman. He actually goes so far in verse 16 as to call her a daughter of Abraham. And to you, again, that may mean absolutely nothing, but the Hebrew men love to refer to themselves as sons of Abraham. In fact, most of the time when Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees, they're arguing that they are right because they're sons of Abraham, but never, never would they allow a daughter of Abraham to be spoken, but Jesus spoke it because what he's saying is, you ladies have the same value as the men. Number three, number three, I'll get moving faster here. Jesus treated the women as disciples worthy of following him. When there are women at the cross and women at the resurrection, when there are women showing up all over the place, go read Luke sometime. Just you flip through in your Bible, even do it digitally or online. You will see story after story after story after story after story. And the reason Luke is doing that is because he wants you to know what Jesus came to do was revolutionary. He came to call women into a life-changing relationship. Not only that, but this is in fulfillment of all that was ever prophesied. Now, prophecy literally means to communicate on behalf of God. There's something called predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is when, in the Old Testament, God spoke to somebody, and they wrote down what God said, told the people what God said, and then we look for, did it come true? And here's the thing. The Bible has not been wrong yet. Just wrestle with that. If you're wrestling with whether God is real or not, whether the Bible's trustworthy, whether Jesus is who he says he is, it's not been wrong yet. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, Joel makes this profound statement. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And afterward, Joel writes, this is God speaking through Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and what? Oh, so it's not just the men. We'll prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even all my servants, both men and, say it with me, women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Guess when those days are? Today, right now, here, ever since Pentecost, right after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, about a month later, the Holy Spirit came down, and now the Spirit fills up all who follow after God through the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's powerful, as Peter tells us, is because now there is something we call the priesthood of all believers. See, in the Old Testament, according to the old ways, the priesthood was just one of the tribes, the 12 tribes, that God set aside and said, you'll be my priests and servants. And even then, it was only the men of that tribe. But now that Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the dead, and the Spirit lives in you, you're a priest and you're a priestess, and if you are filled with the presence of God, then you have God living in you. The kingdom of God is here. It's right here. It's near. It's inside you. The power of heaven is right here, and it doesn't matter where you come from. It only matters that you embrace it and live for him. Yeah, you can preach. You can clap for God, man. 
This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, your, clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's slave nor free, or male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is not saying is what our culture wants to twist those words into today. Paul is not saying that there is no, for, no longer male or female. It's just all of this blend. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you come to Jesus, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, what color skin you have. It doesn't matter how well educated you are or not. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. When we come to Jesus, we all get the same spirit and the same God living inside us. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It's time to figure out what we're supposed to do with this. Because see, I told you, some of you are gonna feel freed. Because see, some of you come from a church background where you've been told because you're a woman, sit on the sideline and watch the men do the work. Not here. Not here. Because we believe in the priesthood of all saints. And part of the power of that, I love, when I came to Kingsway, that was Kingsway. That, that, that's not something I brought here. I, I inherited a church that already believed that. In fact, when I got here, we'd been without a worship pastor for like eight or nine months, and we had ladies like Wendy Gerber and Krista Shields and Lisa Lewis, and there were some other men too. There were plenty of men too, but they were leading the charge. And I heard a story about one of our members at that time, and uh, he was mad. He didn't like that. He didn't like women being in positions of influence and authority. And so he would literally sit out in the hallway waiting until they were done leading, and he would come in for the preaching. I gotta be honest, I'm okay that he left our church. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna tell you his name either, but it's, no, I'm just kidding, I wanna do it. But the reason that irritates me is because I think this guy needed to spend some time reading his Bible. This guy needed to spend some time understanding the word of God. See, ladies, some of you grew up at a church or a background where you were told you were second rate or not good enough. That's not what the Bible says. So ladies, how are you gonna step into that? How are you gonna step up in those ways. Of course, I believe in leadership, and of course, I believe in mutual submission between husbands and wives, and I believe the Bible teaches that the biblical role of eldership is restricted to men, but that's it. And what we believe here at Kingsway is you can have any function in the church outside of elder as a woman, any. Praise God, that's good news. Why is it that almost all over the world, Christians tend to be more women than men? Why are women a little bit more open to this message than men tend to be? Maybe men, it's because you're too stubborn, I don't know. All the wives in the room might admit that I'm right. It's because you overanalyze and you overthink. Maybe it's because like the first century Jews, you're judgmental of women and think they're too emotional, not logical enough. Maybe, but many of them are finding the kingdom of God because they're not afraid to let go and let God do something great in them. So here's some annoying questions. Ready? This is the part where I make everybody mad. All right. If I have valued all human life the way that God does, who would I treat with more honor and respect? If every human being is made in the image of God, then who have I treated as if they were less than that? 
Many Christians in the last election voted for our current president because they despised the other options. Honestly, I, who you vote for is between you and God, and you're never going to hear me tell you who to vote for, ever. However, I've heard some Christians say some pretty mean and evil things about people on the other side of them, regardless of which side you're on. Oh, don't get me wrong, I've heard plenty of people say evil and mean things about our current president as well, as well as previous ones. How about your parents? Your neighbor? Your boss? How about that person at work who you would probably classify as your enemy? Did you justify the slander, the gossip, the rumors, and the evil things that you said or did about them? Did you justify it in your own mind and heart because you had some great reason why you were right? Did you know that it's possible for a person to be wrong in their approach, wrong in their beliefs, wrong in their actions, and yet still be deserving, deserving of honor? How do I know? Because I've been wrong. And yet those who love me correct me and rebuke me in love. They don't tear me down. They don't name call. They don't slander. They don't gossip. They come to me. They say something because they love me. And if people are made in the image of God, then we don't have the choice of using our tongue in one moment to build up one person and tear down another. If people are made in the image of God, then we must treat them with honor and respect. I said this in one service and not in the other. Um, I think it was at our 8 a.m., but look, I think our, the PC culture, the politically correct culture, I think it's gone too far. That's another sermon for another day. But I'll tell you what, when this thing first started, there are a lot of things in our culture that needed to go away, and the politically correct concept brought a lot of that to us. There are words and jokes and phrases and ideas and people that when I was a kid, it was normal to mock and make fun of, and it was acceptable. Nobody ever told me it was wrong because it's what we did. And I praise God that today we pause and say, hey, that might be offensive to those people. As Christians, we ought to be thinking twice before we say things that are offensive. Now, truth is truth. It doesn't fluctuate with culture. Truth is truth. It's a, it's, it's a plumb line. You, you can trust it. But I still have the responsibility to be honoring to people. Question, annoying question number two. Is there any area of my life where my actions have degraded or devalued another person made in God's image? If yes, then what do I need to change? And perhaps I should have added, and what do I need to do about it? Let me just tell you right now, the hardest apology you're ever going to make, the hardest forgiveness you're ever going to seek is the one when somebody has no idea you did it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's, when you get caught, it's easy to say, yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But when somebody has no idea and you go up to them and say, you don't have any idea I did this, but I hurt you, and I'm sorry. And yet, as Christians, isn't that what it means to forgive completely? Isn't that what it means to walk completely in grace? To bring out of the darkness and into the light those things that are currently in darkness? Listen, if you have been cutting down or devaluing or degrading or whatever, somebody else, I don't care if it's their color of skin, their language, their gender, whatever it is, what do you need to do? What do you need to stop doing? And in, just in case I haven't fully offended you, question number three, how am I bringing heaven to earth the glory of God? 
I believe what God was trying to build in this thing called church is he was trying to build a family where all this amalgamation of neither Jew nor Greek nor barbarian or whatever, slave or free or male or female, they would all come together in one place and it would be a melting pot. And sometimes it would get heated and ugly as we had to work through our our preconceived notions about who they are and what they do. And as we worked through it together, we would find freedom and love. So where are you bringing heaven to earth? Let me just make two quick suggestions and I'll close with a quote, all right? Suggestion number one, if you are visiting with us, you're a guest. There's a gentleman at the beginning of the last service, he got baptized. Backstage was like, man, how long have you been at Kingsway? I expect him to say like 12 months, maybe six months. He said four to five years. I'm like, what? Like, okay, I'm glad you finally decided to like join us. Like you and your wife and your two kids. Look, maybe you've been visiting and it's been a week or two weeks or a year or five years. I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And it's time to stop sitting on the sideline watching God do great things through this church. It's time for you to become a part of the family and do great things with us. The first place to start is by connecting with us. We gotta know you're there. We gotta know what the next step is for you. We're ready to walk you into that next step. You gotta step into it. So grab this connect card in front of you. Put your name on there. Yes, you're gonna have to give us a little information. Don't worry, we won't send you too much spam. I'm just kidding. Um, And just go to the connect hub right outside these doors and say, I wanna become a part of the family. But listen, maybe you've been here for a while, you call this place home, however that looks, because we've changed that model over the years, but if you call Kingsway home, and you've been here, and you are one of us, but you're sitting on the sideline, I want you to join us in bringing heaven to earth. It's time. And that might mean going and serving on a mission trip, that might mean jumping into one of our ministries, or that might mean just letting us know what ministry you're doing for Jesus outside these walls, and we could join you in praying and supporting you and encouraging you. And if that's you, just grab the serve card, say, fill it out, go to the connect hub, say, here I am, it's time for me to stop watching everybody else bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. I wanna be a part of it too. Because listen, don't miss this, and I'll close with this. There's only one hero in the story, and it's not me. And it's not you. It's Jesus Christ, and it's what he is doing in the world. I love the way Timothy Keller says this. He says, the Bible, unlike the books on which other religions are based, is not about following moral examples. It is about a God of mercy and long-suffering who continually works in and through us despite our constant resistance to his purposes. Ultimately, there was only one hero in this book, and he's divine. To that end, I want to pray. Because again, I knew this message would land in a lot of different places. And uh, when I'm done praying, we're just going to sing. And we're going to pray and praise God for his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for uh, giving me the opportunity to preach this message about your good news. And God, the reason it's good is because we all have the opportunity to be set free. God, I pray right now for women who are in this place. Maybe they've been physically or sexually abused. Maybe they feel trapped in a relationship. Maybe they feel oppressed in some way or another. God, maybe they're at home watching online or later down the road. God, I pray that they would see that Jesus is truly good and his news is good news and his kingdom is a good and kind and merciful kingdom. And God, may they feel set free. I pray for men in this room, God, who have used their words or their bodies to be cruel or harsh or mean or anything like that towards a woman. God, I pray that they would feel convicted and desire change and that you would honor that desire, that repentance in them, Father, and walk with them through this. 
Father, I pray for all of us. May we be a people. Make us into a people, God, where outsiders feel welcomed in our presence and they feel so overwhelmed with love and kindness and mercy that even when we speak hard, offensive truths, instead of being turned away, they feel drawn to us and don't understand why. And God, may that be true right here, right now. Come, Father, come receive our praise as we worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing.